be seated again. Let's bring uh, the needs of a heavy world before our Heavenly Father. Uh, Father God, we lift up uh, to you uh, the, the country of the, the British Virgin Islands. Um, we uh, are thankful, uh, Father God, that uh, they are uh, blessed with, with much tourism. And, uh, but we also know that tourism uh, sometimes uh, takes a toll. Um, as, as we are learning more and more here in Cleveland. And, and we pray, Father, for the local Christian population of the British Virgin Island to be bold and to be strong in their faith and to continue to preach the gospel and to use those opportunities of tourism to reach those who might otherwise be unreachable so that the church would grow in the British Virgin Islands but also grow internationally as the locals preach the gospel globally from their own shores. Father, we also pray for the church in Brunei. We pray, Father, for their perseverance um, amidst uh, uh, a government that uh, forbids the, the proclamation of the, the gospel, forbidding outside uh, help from Christian missionaries or Christian aid workers. And we pray that despite those limitations, they would do what you've called them to do, that like your apostles in Acts, they would have the boldness to proclaim we must obey God rather than men. We pray for a Christian leadership there that uh, knows the word of God well, and can train other Christians to know your word well, that they might raise up a, a generation that loves your word, that dwells in your word, that is passionate about your word. And we pray for your church to grow exponentially despite the heavy hand and restrictions of the government there. Father, we pray here locally for the, uh, the Cleveland Metropolitan School District as they continue to search for a new CEO. We pray that the great wisdom would be given um, to the leaders who are tasked with making these decisions, um, that a vision would be given uh, to the leadership and to that new CEO that would help children to flourish here in Cleveland, to learn and to grow, to expand upon educational gains that have been made in the last 10 or 15 years, that would help teachers to flourish in, in their classrooms, that ultimately help families to flourish. We pray, Father, for confidence in the school district. Not unwarranted confidence, but we pray for confidence in the school district here in Cleveland. So that families and communities and businesses can rally around the city and can rally around the community. And Father, we pray We pray, Father, for those churches that 
are in Cleveland and, and in the suburbs that simply were hit hard by the pandemic and have shut their doors or on the verge of shutting their doors and their remaining members or trustees or board members are struggling to figure out what to do with what is left. Father God, we pray that you would give them a gospel vision. Give them a heavenly vision. Give them a vision that is not small, but large. Don't let them be scared. Encourage them. Strengthen them for this task. God, where revival is possible, we pray that your spirit would bring revival. Where they think that the doors are ready to be shut, that you would fling them wide open. And that you would start new movements of gospel faithfulness in old places. And where doors have shuttered, Father, we pray that those remaining resources would be channeled to places that would propagate the message of the good news and the hope of Jesus so that their legacy might continue for generations to come. And comfort those saints tasked with making those difficult decisions by your Spirit. He is our comforter, and we pray he would comfort them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I told you, I'm Chris, and I'm one of the pastors here, but I'm not preaching today, even though I'm usually the guy who preaches. This morning, uh, Andrew Bryant is, is going to be preaching for us. We are breaking from our sermon series on 1 Samuel briefly, as Andrew brings us a message from 1 John 1, 5 through 10. Andrew's preached for us many times. He's been a member here longer than I have. So we're happy to have him up here. Um, and I'll just hand things over to him. All right. Good morning, everyone. Um, Turn with me, if you will, or tap, click, swipe, scroll, ask Siri, etc., cetera, uh, to 1 John um, 5, 1 through 10. I think it will be behind me, yes. All right. <clears throat> this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Um, 
let me apologize ahead of time if at some point today I lose my train of thought or just stop talking and kind of stare out into the congregation like I've forgotten who I am or what I'm doing. Uh, I have a, a two and a half week old at home, so I'm not sleeping very much. Um, alternatively, if I start kind of like shaking violently, that's probably the nine shots of espresso that was in my coffee this morning. Uh, but hopefully I can stay somewhere in the middle of those two extremes today, as I've been wanting to preach on this passage for some time now. I started thinking about it a while ago um, and decided if I was asked to preach again, I would try to preach on this passage. So when Chris asked me if I was available to preach on March 19th, when my wife was due to um, give birth a few weeks earlier, instead of saying, nah, I'm good, you know, like a sane person, I countered with, uh, can I pick my passage? Um, so I, I like this passage because it exposes a tension in a Christian's life between trying to be in relationship with a sinless and perfect God uh, while we are sinners, and it provides the answer to that tension, Jesus Christ on the cross. Um, John argues through this passage that the way to walk in the light is to confess our sins and repent, and the blood of Jesus um, shed on the cross will cleanse our sin and fix our relationship with a perfect God. It's a clear and concise argument that sets the framework for the rest of the letter. Uh, but before we dive into this passage, let's talk a little bit about the historical context of the letter. Uh, the letter of 1 John was written by John the Apostle. He wrote the gospel according to John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. After leaving Jerusalem, John ministered primarily in the region of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, uh, and these churches are the most likely audience for this letter. Now, John's writing at a time where in the early church, um, and, and likely the churches that John is writing to, they've seen a lot of people who they thought were part of the church leaving or going out from the church. And this bears at least some resemblance to what we're seeing in American culture today, doesn't it? You know, we're seeing the alleged secularization of a supposedly Christian culture. According to the Pew Research Center, the number of people who do not identify with any religion has grown to 30% of the population, while the number of people who claim to be Christian has dropped to 63%, down from 75% 10 years ago. Uh, Pew attempted to project these trends out into the future, and in three of their four scenarios, the percentage of the population that identifies as Christian drops below 50% by the year 2070. Now, I say alleged secularization of a supposedly Christian culture, because I think in, when, in many ways, this is the mentality that our truly secular culture just wants to project. You know, they say, look at how many people are walking away from God. But in reality, we in America have always had an inflated notion of who is a Christian. You know, poll takers have marked respondents down as Christian simply because they said they were. Um, you know, I remember reading a, a news article analyzing exit polls many years ago, um, stating that uh, a recent president's strongest support during the primary season came from non-church-going evangelicals. Now, if you're familiar with Gateway's teaching on the biblical model for church membership, you might be scratching your head wondering what a non-church-going evangelical even is. In our passage today, John ties fellowship with God to fellowship with one another. 
So the notion that a Christian, the notion of a Christian who's not in fellowship with other believers is certainly strange. Um, so in my opinion, what I think these numbers from uh, the Pew Research Center are really telling us is that the trend of calling yourself a Christian because you grew up with your parents telling you that you were a Christian is starting to fade. For a more biblical understanding of this trend, we can look to 1 John. In the second chapter of this epistle, John writes, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. John is responding to a movement in the days of the early church of people who seemed like they had accepted the teaching of the gospel, but now they've either changed their mind or they have accepted a teaching that is contrary to the gospel. In other words, a heresy. And accepting this new teaching proves that the gospel had never really taken hold in their lives, to the point that John labels them antichrists. I said there's a resemblance between what John writes about and what we're seeing today. It's not um, a perfect one-to-one comparison, you know, but for example, we in the church have always been aware of the cultural Christian or the nominal Christian, uh, someone who claims to be a Christian, but when pressed on what that means, they don't really believe the gospel um, or any of the core tenets of Christianity, or they may not even believe in God at all. But, you know, they were raised Christian, and they feel at home in the church until they don't. Or perhaps they like the moral teachings of Jesus and think that being a Christian is a good way to be a good person. People who fall into this category may have grown up in a fire and brimstone style, be good or you will go to hell kind of church, or maybe it was a more hollow, God thinks you are perfect the way you are, don't worry about sin type of church. But they never really accepted the gospel. They probably weren't taught the gospel, and perhaps they never even heard the gospel. I don't know if John would use the term antichrist to describe someone who thought they were a Christian because their parents always told them, you're a Christian, and then one day they admit that they didn't believe it. Uh, But I do think one thing is clear. There is a purpose when people leave the church. God will hold fast those who belong to him and will let fall those who do not so that there is no confusion. John writes, They went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And that was true when John wrote it in Turkey in the first century, and it's true today. There's a reason that we are seeing a trend where people who were never really part of the church are ceasing to identify with the church. Uh, The church holds a special role displaying the glory of God to a fallen world. It is God's design that when the world looks at the church, they see the very glory of God. Now, I don't by any means mean that the world will see perfect, sinless people when it looks at the church. Our passage today will confirm the opposite. Uh, But when people look at the church, they will see the glory of what God has done on the cross to redeem the unredeemable. So let's keep that in mind as we unpack what John has in store for us in this passage today.
Um, so John writes this letter as a warning to those who have held firm to the gospel to persevere in the teaching that they have received from God. After warning of the Antichrist who have gone out from the church to follow these false teachings, John says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, more specifically, that you have no need of anyone teaching anything contrary to the gospel that has been proclaimed by the apostles, which John argues has come directly from God. He continues, but his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. We don't have an exhaustive list of these false teachings um, because rather than provide a letter detailing all of them for why they are wrong, John, by the wisdom of the Spirit, instead just lays down the truth and lets it speak for itself. And in so doing, he refutes not just the present heresies of his day, but also any future heresy that sought to sidestep the reality of our sin. But we can deduce um, what some of these teachings were based on the positive truths that John emphasizes. For example, in 1 John uh, 4, 2, and 3, John writes, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is now in the world already. So these false teachers were denying something about the incarnation, likely that Jesus took on true human form. And in 1 John 5, uh, 6 through 8, he writes, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Again, John references that Jesus came in true flesh with blood and also invokes the cross where his blood was shed. In 1 John 2, 2, he writes of Jesus, he is the propitiation for our sins. So the false teachers that John labels antichrists were likely trying to undermine the doctrine of atonement. Um, when I use the words propitiation and atonement, I mean the teaching that Jesus' death on the cross was a substitute for the death that we owe God for our sins. The word uh, propitiation means the act of appeasing God or regaining his favor. The word atonement is a translation of the Hebrew word uh, kafar, which means to cover or purge. So the doctrine of substitutionary atonement is that Jesus, by his death on the cross, regained for us God's favor by taking on himself the just penalty for our sins. The Antichrist that John warns of attacked the Incarnation to say that Jesus did not come in the flesh, a common theme in many future heresies such as uh, Gnosticism or Christian science, to give a few examples. Um, and they, they attacked this because if he did not come in the flesh, then he did not die a real death. So how could his death be an atonement for our sins? So salvation must then come some other way perhaps by denying our sinfulness. 
as we'll see in the passage today. Um, This was not the only time in history that false teachers sought to do away with the problem of our innate sinfulness. Pelagianism had its heyday in the 5th century, uh, teaching that we did not have a corrupted sin nature and circulating a distorted view of free will that suggested we had the capability to live sinless lives. Um, we, can, we continue to see false teachers today who suggest that you can live sinless. Um, some, I'm not going to call anyone out by name, but his initials are Todd White from Lifestyle Christianity, um, have even gone so far as to claim that they have been living without sin for X number of years, claiming that they have been living as righteously as Jesus. To borrow from the wise King Solomon, there truly is nothing new under the sun. We as humans have always longed for an escape from confronting our sin. Our pride makes it difficult for us to admit, even to God, even to ourselves, that we are unholy. This inner struggle and desire to escape it has had several different permutations. There have been teachings that emphasize the importance of living righteously to the point that they start to teach that you can attain righteousness if you just stop sinning. There have been teachings that de-emphasize sin to the point that they want to focus only on the love of God and remove from God's character the attributes of justice and holiness. At their core, all of these teachings are searching for a way not to wrestle with the fact that we are sinners and that God's righteous anger is against us and that we have no argument to shield us or deflect his wrath. Against this backdrop is set John's core argument of this passage. To drive these points home, John uses the imagery of light versus darkness and introduces this theme in verse 5 by talking about how God is light and there is no darkness in him. This truth, he says, is delivered to us straight from God. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. The theme of uh, God being light is a familiar one for John. We can follow it all the way back to the first chapter of John's gospel. Speaking of Jesus, John writes, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When John says that God is light and there is no darkness in him, He means that holiness and righteousness are such fundamental parts of God's character that he is the antithesis of unholiness, the antithesis of unrighteousness, the antithesis of sin. But if God's character is the antithesis of sin, then what hope do sinners have? If we cannot have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, As John says in verse 6, and which makes sense because in God there is and can be no darkness, then how can anyone have fellowship with God? How can confessing our sin, in other words, admitting to the one in whom there is no darkness, that we have darkness, lead to walking in the light and having fellowship? In provoking these questions, this passage hits on some of the most fundamental tensions of the Christian message. We have a God who is perfect in holiness and unrighteousness and a people who are the exact opposite, and yet God loves us still. 
It is a tension that can pull churches or individuals who do not have a firm foundation in the gospel one way or the other into darkness and ruin. So I'm reminded of um, those tall radio towers held in place by the high-tension wires, the red and white ones. Maybe you've seen them. Um, you know, I don't know if they're air traffic control or radio stations or emergency broadcasts. I'm, I'm not really sure. Um, there's like six of them right by my house. Um, you know, but they go, they're very tall. They go high up in the sky to broadcast their signal, but they're also very skinny. Um, so they need these high-tension wires attached at various points along the tower to keep them straight and balanced. But if their foundation does not go beneath the surface of the ground level, if they're just resting on the ground, then these cables will backfire. They'll become unbalanced and topple. I assume that's true. I'm not technically a structural engineer, but it seems like a reasonable assumption to me. In the same way, the gospel of Jesus, the cross on which he died to atone for our sins, is our foundation. And when we are rooted in that foundation, these tensions help keep us balanced. We know that God is holy and perfect, and so we fight the urge to live indulgently in our sin, and we strive to live according to God's perfect law. But when we fail, because we are sinners, we return to our foundation in the cross. But if we don't have that hope, then this tension will lead to despair, and it will produce teachings that are driven to eliminate this tension. If you are not teaching or believing that Christ died as a substitutionary atonement for sin to reconcile depraved sinners to a perfect God, to pay a debt incurred by our sin that we could never afford, this tension will overwhelm you. And so what will you teach or believe? Will you say that to be holy, we must live a holy life and that by keeping God's law, we can become righteous enough to be accepted by God? Well, Paul makes quick work of this argument in Galatians 2.21. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. John dismisses it in this passage as saying, as saying we have fellowship while living in darkness. Will you say that our sin does not really separate us from God, that his love for us shows that he accepts us just the way we are, sin and all? Well, in Romans 2.4, Paul disposes of this argument. He writes, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It does not make sense either in light of today's passage, seeing as God is light and in him can be no darkness. Or will you take the strategy of trying to edit God's historic law, trying to soften it and lessen the confrontation with a culture today that is uninterested in God's holiness? But Jesus has said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. God's law was perfect when it was given, and it is perfect today. Its purpose is and always was to show that we are sinners and show us our need for a Savior. We don't need to change it to give people hope. We just need to point them to their true hope. You may have started to gather that there are many different formulations of what John calls walking in darkness. 
Um, and I want to look specifically at what John has to say about it. But I also want to highlight one specific thing that we'll come back to but about what John doesn't say. He doesn't say that if you commit a sin, you are walking in darkness. He doesn't say that if you commit a certain number of sins, you are walking in darkness. And he doesn't say that if you commit a sin and then die before you have repented of it, that you have died in darkness. John has no delusions that he is writing to perfect people. If anything, this passage serves as a warning against foolishly believing that we could achieve perfection. This is a letter to sinners reminding us of what it means to walk in the light and rely on God's grace. The two connected examples that John gives us of walking in the darkness are in verses 6 and 8. Right? So if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In these two verses, the result of the action is the same. Lying and deceiving are the same thing, and one who does not practice the truth is one who the truth is not in. So these two verses are connected and tied together. Saying we have fellowship while we walk in darkness and saying we have no sin are tied together and connected. Additionally, we see a sub-theme emerge from John's darkness theme. Lying and deception are woven through both of these verses, and truth is absent. This ties back to John with John's core argument that we must confess our sins, repent, and rely on, John, on God's grace. The only way to avoid confronting this reality is to lie, not just to everyone else, but to ourselves about who we really are. To say that we are capable of living without sin or worse, to claim that we have accomplished it, is to deceive ourselves about our sinfulness. Um, Sho Baraka flips the old saying about finding Jesus on its head with a lyric that I really like. It says, I was glad when the Lord found me because he was never lost. Every one of us who is a Christian was found in our darkness by God. We can't find Jesus when we are walking in darkness, blind to the truth. His death for our sins made it possible for us to have fellowship with God. But to say that we have fellowship without acknowledging the darkness he brought us out of, without being honest about the temptation that we still feel towards that darkness, without admitting that we sometimes stumble back into dark areas and have an ever-present need for repentance, these are indicators of deception. Who are we hoping to fool by playing the part of the good Christian who has their act together? The world? Ourselves? I've talked at length about the different ways that walking in darkness manifests itself. I want to say again, though, that the underlying and unifying theme is that these are born out of a desire to avoid confronting our own darkness. And what John shows us here is that movement or belief structure or teaching, any movement or belief structure or teaching that eliminates the need to confront our darkness is a sign of darkness itself. It is a sign of deception. We cannot deny the truth about our sinfulness and then claim to have fellowship with the one who saves us from sin. If we cannot admit that we need him to save us from our sin, we can't have fellowship with him. 
Just like John gives us two connected verses about what it means to walk in darkness, we have two connected verses about walking in the light. Verse 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. And verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just like how verses 6 and 8 are connected together by the deceiving and the lying and the absence of truth, these two verses are connected by the cleansing from all sin and from all unrighteousness, which are the same thing. So therefore, we can conclude that there is a connection between confessing our sins and walking in the light and having fellowship with God. In addition to these two verses being connected by the cleansing, they also each serve as a juxtaposition to a darkness verse. In verse 6, we see that walking in darkness, while we say we have fellowship, means we are lying about having fellowship. And in verse 7, the opposite is true. Walking in light means that we have fellowship. In verse 8, we see that if we um, say that we have no sin, we are lying and um, really walking in darkness. And in verse 9, the opposite is true. If we confess our sins, we are cleansed. And therefore, we are walking in the light and have fellowship. Um, One final connection that John draws is the connection between fellowship with God in verse 6 and fellowship with one another in verse 7. Remember that these two uh, verses serve as a juxtaposition of light and dark. So John says that if we have fellowship, if we say we have fellowship with God while we are in darkness, we are lying. But if we practice the truth and confess our sins, we have fellowship with one another. Because in verse 7, we are cleansed of all sin, we are also able to have fellowship with God. But John calls out fellowship with one another. Fellowship with God is possible only when our sin is removed and we are walking in the light. And this is true because there can be no darkness in God. So to be in a right relationship with him, we must have our darkness cleansed. But John lays this out as a requirement for fellowship with one another as well. Not because we have the same perfect hatred for darkness that God has, but because our love for our brothers and sisters demands that we desire to see them walk in the same light as us. In 1 John um, 4, 7 through 8, John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. We cannot have Christian fellowship with one who is walking in darkness because to leave them in darkness is an act of hatred. If we have a brother who is claiming that he is without sin or claims that his sins are not sins or do not separate him from God, and we do not condemn this thinking and urge him to confess his sins to God and repent, we are consigning him over to darkness. We must urge him to repent through gentler means at first, but if he resists, then ultimately we must remove him from fellowship to convey the seriousness of his spiritual state of darkness. To continue trying to make fellowship work on false pretenses is wrong and misleading. So what John is saying here is that we can only truly have fellowship with those that have fellowship with God. I really wish this podium was a few inches taller. 
So now that we see how these two sets of verses are connected to each other and set up the contrast between light and dark, how do we answer those questions from earlier? If God's character is the antithesis of sin, what hope do sinners have? How can we who come out of darkness have fellowship with a God in whom there is no darkness? We are able to have this fellowship by the blood of Jesus, by the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, offering up his life as a payment for our debt. And we know that his life was a sufficient payment for our debt because he lives. He was resurrected. After paying the debt incurred by our sin, the wrath of God was satisfied and Jesus was still righteous. He had more than enough righteousness to cover our debt. And, place, and, and it, so if we confess our sins and place our faith in the one who is faithful, we will be forgiven. As he has promised, and God is just to forgive, not just merciful and gracious, but also just because he will not punish twice. He has not just given us a free pass here. Make no mistake, our sin was paid for by the blood of the Son of God. So how does all of this lead to fellowship? In, uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, this was a complete exchange. On the cross, Jesus took on our sin, as we've talked about, and also credited to us his righteousness. So because we have confessed our sin and placed our faith in Jesus, he has not only cleansed us of our unrighteousness, but also credited us with his righteousness. Being cleansed and credited, we are therefore in the light and we have fellowship with one another and with God. But that doesn't happen without faith. If we lack the faith to believe in God's promise that he is faithful, if we lack the faith to believe that God has the power to do what he has promised, if we lack the faith that Jesus' righteousness is sufficient to cover our debt, we will never be ready to confront our sin nature. If we don't have faith in the gospel, we will continue to look to the law for our salvation and conveniently drop the parts of it that are uh, too hard for us and focus on what we do well. Or we will dive into movements that promise the grace part without having to confront the sin part. But any outworking of these strategies is bound to leave us in darkness, bereft of fellowship. There is only one way to fellowship with God, and it is the cross of Christ. Finally, John closes this passage with the statement, If we say we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. I think we can understand here that um, saying we have not sinned is meant to encompass any manifestation of walking in darkness. If we say we have not sinned because we have rejected the parts of God's law that we don't think should apply anymore, are we not also calling God a liar by calling his law false? If we admit we sin but deny that sin leads to death, are we not also calling God a liar? What John drives home is that if we continue to walk in darkness, not only are we deceiving ourselves, but we make God out to be a deceiver.
there are three distinct ways in which rejecting the gospel is an attempt to paint God as a liar. The first one is obvious. Scripture states that God's law is holy and true and that violating it in any way makes us unrighteous. Scripture goes on to state explicitly that not one person besides Jesus has ever walked on this earth without violating the law. So to say that we have no sin because we are just that perfect goes directly against what God has said in his word. To say that we have no sin by way of claiming that the law is flawed clearly impugns God's honesty. And to admit that we violate the law but deny that it makes us unrighteous and unable to be in the presence of a perfectly righteous God suggests that God's character is not perfectly righteous. The second way in which rejecting the gospel paints God as a liar is that it denies why Jesus died. So let's reflect back on Paul's words that I quoted earlier from Galatians. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And what Paul is really saying here is that if there were any way to attain righteousness other than through the death of Jesus in which he atoned for our sins and attributed to us his righteousness, then Jesus did not need to die. But we know that it was not an accident that Jesus died on the cross or something out of his control. In John 10, Jesus says to his disciples, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. In John, <coughs> in John 19, Jesus says to Pontius Pilate, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. So we see that not only is Jesus intentionally choosing to lay his life down for us, but that he is also voluntarily submitting to the will of the Father. This is confirmed as Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsem Gethsemane. It's a hard word. Um, as uh, one who knew no sin was as, as the one who knew no sin was preparing to take upon himself the sins of the world, he says, "My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will." We also know that this was always God's plan. As Isaiah prophesied, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Leaders in some modern movements seeking to undermine the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, um, for example, Tony Jones of the so-called emergent church, have posed questions like, why couldn't God have just said, forget about justice, I'm just going to do love I'm just going to forgive. And what is so insidious about questions like these is that they directly impugn God's character. They suggest that God is not perfectly just. When Moses asked God to show him his glory, God passed by him and a voice proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Moses asks of God, please show me your ways that I may know you. And this was God's response. And now we are going to ask of God, hey, why, why can't you just clear the guilty? Who do we think we are? This is unfortunately another familiar outworking of an intrinsic need to avoid confronting the reality of sin. Once again, if you're not rooted in the gospel, how can you face the reality that you are so broken and so depraved that God had to die to bring you out of darkness? So new theories will be woven about how God forgives or how we can live righteously and the reasons that scripture gives for us for why Jesus died on the cross are denied. The third way in which saying we have no sin or denying that we need a savior makes God out to be a liar is that it steals God's glory. And the person making this claim is trying to claim it as their own glory. If I say that I am righteous, that I have no sin and have never broken God's law, then I don't need God's grace for salvation. I've earned my salvation. In this situation, it would not be God who is glorified by my salvation, but it would be me. Salvation would be my just reward for living a righteous and holy life. But God has claimed the church, the universal body of those who God has rescued out of darkness as a testament to his glory. In Excuse me. In Ephesians 3, Paul writes, uh, Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. But if we can't confront our sins and have to come up with other reasons why we are in fellowship with God, we deny this claim. It is only by confessing our sins and admitting our need for Jesus as our Savior that we testify to, the, to God's glory in redeeming sinners. So what I hope to leave you with today is the understanding that there are so many different enticements towards hiding away our sin in some dark corner that we don't have to think about. But these will all leave us in darkness. There is only one true answer to our darkness, what John lays out in this passage confess our sins and repent. Repentance is the act of turning away from your sin and struggling against it and struggling for God's righteousness. And this is a mighty struggle. This is by no means a passage that says you will be successful in this struggle. It is a struggle that will follow you until the day you die. This is not a passage that says, if you sin, you are walking in darkness, and the way to walk in the light is not to sin. But finding ways around your, our sinfulness is also walking in darkness. The way to walk in the light is the cross of Christ. He died to cleanse us for our sins. Now John calls us, confess and repent. God is faithful to do what he has promised. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this passage today and the truth that it reveals about you. We thank you for this reminder that we will not be crushed 
under the weight of our iniquities, but that you have sent your son to bear that burden. This is a truth that we cannot ever fully thank you for. So great is your mercy and grace towards us that we could sing of it for ages and only touch the surface. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us with the resolve to be honest about our need for you. I pray that the truths from our passage today will take root in our lives and empower us to confess our sins to you and repent. Strengthen us, Lord, to fight against what you hate, but we once loved. Give us the will to hate it too, that we might walk in the light as one who has placed their faith in the Savior. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.